Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio. We've got a special guest for you. Uh, it's been a little bit while. Uh, we've, uh, we took a break for the summer. We got back into our podcast schedule. So we're excited for our guest today coming all the way and that's sarcasm there not he's not that far he lives here in the state of connecticut uh from danbury connecticut uh pancreatic cancer survivor alan taylor alan thank you for being a guest on the project purple podcast and thank you for having me i really appreciate the time well we're we're excited to have you here on the podcast uh i love all our guests but i think there's something special when we have survivors and fighters on the podcast to share their journey with what you know we're trying to ultimately solve here is this thing called pancreatic cancer and our community as a whole has played a large part in that and supporting our efforts and so we love having survivors and fighters on to share their journey so with that alan um, this is customary here on our podcast the first section or session of the of the podcast is really our guest opportunity to share with our audience how you got here today, share a little bit about your journey with pancreatic cancer. And I'll hand over the mic in a second, but I always say you can go as far back as you want and you can stay as high level as you want. And with that, the mic is yours. Well, I know that a journey isn't finished until someone else can repeat the journey. Because if you don't have anyone to recognize that you've been through a journey, it really didn't happen. So you always mm. need a witness to that. And I thank you for giving me this opportunity to have a witness. Um, you know, my journey started, I think, when my wife came down with cancer and she was not a survivor of it. Mm. She did die. So in that journey, um, I became aware of the uh, the significance of knowing the difference in people's health, hmm. especially people who are close to you. You may not realize that they're going through something, but you see a change in them. So my journey began in realizing there was a change in my wife's uh, health. In doing so, um, I realized I had to take care of her and my family. So what happened was, uh, Gino, when doing that, I realized that in being concerned about her health, I was not recognizing and taking care of my own health. And that probably is uh, familiar with a lot of people who are caregivers to their mm -hmm. family, neighbors, cousins, whoever, that they're so embedded in taking care of them, they forget to take care of themselves. And that was one of the things I was guilty of, not really taking care of myself. So in doing so, working extra hours, making um, anything that would be eligible for me to make time for my family was probably limited because I was working more time at the job to help support my family. And that is what we do as people. We jog the hours around to fit the family, but forget to take care of ourselves. So that was the beginning of my journey. So the second part, I think my journey began, you know, was when um, at a certain age, you're supposed to take certain tests. They mm -hmm. call it colonoscopies, right? So a colonoscopy was something that, you know, I had probably put off, but was aware it was necessary for me to do it. But I put it off, put it off. And one day I did go to my primary care physician and she had said, you know, we had asked you to take this, uh, this test and you haven't done it. And that was for a couple of years, you know, so I finally said, well, I'll take it. And she was very forthright and she was really convincing to me that I needed to do that. So because of that, it was found an incidental finding hmm. of my cancer. So that was a, that was a that was something that most men would do. I could put it off, put it off. But I think at that time, because of her convenience of uh, having the care for me for the moment, because she could have said, "Oh no, you're good. You made your decision and move on to the next patient," but she was adamant that I would go and take this this test, and I did. So because of that, I was found. Um, with the tumor, and because they found it in an early stage, um, I was pretty fortunate. And I want to get into the details about how fortunate one is, because a fortunate thing is always something that 
is in someone's different perspective. And what I mean by that, uh, when you see the health of others and you don't realize the health of your own, you would always uh, measure their health by what you see in them and not really look at the health that you have. So I was not really judging anyone else's health. I just didn't judge my own. So because of that, I put no guilt or no blame on anyone because I wasn't taking care of my own taking care of my family, working hard, as I said earlier. Uh, but because of that, I was denying my own right to take care of myself. But as a man, and most of them and also taking care of their family, they forget to take care of themselves. Uh, does that make sense, Gina? Yeah. You know, and, and I think, though, on that subject, though, of, of you know, judging your own health, I kind of classify that as acceptance. If I that, agree. If that makes sense. And I think that's something that, um, when were you diagnosed, Alan? Uh, November 18th of 2019. Okay. 2019. That that acceptance piece is, is very hard, I think, to accept if that makes sense. Oh yeah, it does. You know, and, 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 but what you said though is, is, is just so powerful though, because we see this often with the caregiver. And I remember when my father was going through his fight, someone said this to me and one of the, the golden nuggets that I'll never forget is you can't care for someone who's sick if you're sick. Yeah. And sometimes caring for chronically ill people, you yourself become chronically ill. That's true. So, but, but, but you know, when you're in it though, as you said though, you're the male, and the, we're stereotyping here, so apologize. Most males tend to be, you know, the breadwinner in a family, uh, wife maybe home taking care of young kids. Um, yeah. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's opposite. Sometimes I know there, there's, you know, wives that are, are the premier breadwinners um, in terms of uh, financial income. But as you said, you know, you were trying to take care of the family, not necessarily focusing on your health, but that realization that, hey, I got to do something here or else things are going to go sideways pretty quick for everyone else that rely on you. That is true. So again, it's like this acceptance, right? You accept that reality and accept that I've got to take care of my health so that the other folks in my life that I love and care for the most can rely on me. And you know, I, I, I love what you just said about um, the acceptance part. You know, many, most people... Uh, you know, when they get offended by uh, a negative thought, a, ne a negative um, conversation with someone, they tend to, you know, become an introvert. They don't really look into what's been offensive to them. And so when I realized that my wife was going through her treatment and her cancer, I felt offended that I wasn't able to help her because I was always there to give help. And that was probably the lowest part of my life, not being able to give the help, knowing that you could in other areas, but not that area. Because it was, uh, as you know, cancer is something that is still an ongoing uh, research. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many people uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, who have set the stage for people like me today because uh, what they went through, uh, the treatment has changed. But the acceptance part is that we now as a society have a group of people that believe that some of the cancers are caused by so many different uh, things, the air, the water, what mm -hmm. we breathe. Um, so that's the acceptance, the acceptance that you just said that's hard for me to understand. How did you get it? Where did it come from? 
you know, and that's the offensive part because you don't know where it came from. And yeah. you just don't. You just, you have no control of where it came from. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you just said something else that's pretty powerful is control. <laughs> you know, we, we, I think as humans, we want to control things, right? We want to be able to, to have the control of the situation. And with cancer, not just pancreatic cancer, but all cancers, right? You have to, you have to give up control, right? Control's yep. not, it's not in your control. It is what it is. Um, you know, you have to rely and accept the fact that you got it. Um, you can fight it, find really good doctors, mm -hmm. hopefully have surgery and eliminate it potentially, or have a positive result with regards to the treatments that they provide. So yeah, it's, um, I, I think control and acceptance, Alan, go hand in hand a bit, uh, mm -hmm. because you have to be willing to, A, I think accept the reality. Like probably didn't do anything. Yeah, maybe diet could have been better, but you know, nowadays, like you said, you don't, you don't know. I mean, you could have been exposed to something through work, through diet, that you just didn't know. It's no one's fault. It's not your fault. That's right. But then also realize that you can't control. You know, you're not going to yeah. be able to control it. You're just going to have to hopefully come up with a plan, have the right support systems in place, and accept the fact that uh, that that is just out of your control. Which brings us back to acceptance. And that is so paramount to hear that word acceptance. You know, I, I, you know, when we say the word acceptance, you know, um, I think of a a cage bird. You know, when a cage bird is in its cage, it always does what it's built to do. And when that cage bird is in its cage, it will keep singing because that is what it's built to do. Mm -hmm. And even though I had. Uh, cancer, I had to continue on to do what I was built to do. And that was built to be a caregiver. Yeah. And that's an amazing thing because in doing so, I found, and I know I may step on toes when I say this, but I'm going to say it. I believe the best medicine that I got was laughter. I think that was my, my best medicine that I got from nurses, doctors, uh, because what they, they, they made me realize that you know, in doing your journey, you always have to make fun of it. Yep. Because making fun of it allows that to disarm your anger for it. Yep. So, so I was not angry. Probably, well, let me say, on the outside, I was probably angry when I first was diagnosed and also by life. Angry. Why us? Why us? But after a while, you just become human. So you go, wow, it's another journey. Let's get through it. And, and we both realize we may or may not get through it, but it still reminds me of that cage bird, you know. It just keeps singing and singing, singing, because that's what it's built to do, right? And there's so many things that come across people's lives that can decimate them. Mm -hmm. But I think, again, that best medicine is laughter. I think as society, we should have a month or three months of just laughing on all TVs, news, <laughs> yeah. just laughter. Because that medicine is gone from our society right now. People are talking at each other, no longer talking to each other. Yeah. You know, Gina, I remember getting a letter in the mail. What a great thing when you got a letter in the mail. You went up to your room, sat down either in your bed, your desk, and you opened the letter. What a great feeling. And some of the letter... Parts of it could have laughter. Some of it could have some you know, condescending words in it that you didn't like. But there was something appropriate in the letter in receiving it because well, someone took the time to do it. And we don't take time to laugh at each other or with each other anymore. So I laughed at myself. Um, you know the funniest thing that my wife laughed about when she was uh, diagnosed with that? Her hair. She laughed. It was the funniest thing. She laughed hysterically that she looked bald, and she liked it. She liked being bald, but was humorous in saying, I still look good because I look good inside. Hmm. And that was, a great, that was a great thing to, you know, to say as a human that you still look good inside, as the people in the world see how, see how we look on the outside. We, we're so judgmental. And I'm not, I'm, I was quick to judge cancer, but now when you have it, you stop judging. 
you don't realize, well, what did you do? Did you smoke? Did you drink? Did you, what did you do to get it? No, you don't know. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. Super powerful. Powerful. Wow. You know, and there's one thing that I believe that we all have to realize. There is no free food at the end of a hook. Hmm. We're all going to get hooked on something, whether it's ourselves, whether it's vanity, whether it's anger, whether it's laughter, whether it's a job, whether it's family. Something's going to hook you. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing free that comes along with that. You know, nothing comes free with that. You're going to get hooked on something. Wow. And so even in this podcast time that you and I are sharing together, you don't get time back. You get a memory back from what you spend during that time, but you never get the opportunity to go back. You know, because, you know, a human being only thinks three ways. They think past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. So... So I know my past with my wife's cancer is in the it is in the past, but I look forward to help those people that I know in the future that are that's going to need help. You know, she said, "Help those people that are before you, Al, because I'm going to die." That was courageous. Help some other people. Wow. Try to help me. Well, keep helping, and that is my quest to keep helping some people. And you know, it sounds it sounds taboo. It sounds a little corny, but it's real. And we stop doing that. You know, we stop. We stop, we stop reaching out with an open hand. We come to people now with closed fists. We got to stop doing that. And I hope I was, uh, hope that makes sense in saying that an open hand rather than a closed fist. It totally makes sense. I think, you know, the world needs to hear more and more of that. Maybe people need to realize, and that's what we hope with this podcast, that this does part of it. Um, we've always tried to put out positivity, uh, not to have a, a make believe. Yeah. But, but not to make this make believe like there's no, there's a re there's a stark reality to this podcast. You know, people are fighting for their lives or they beat this thing called pancreatic cancer or they're fighting pancreatic cancer or they've been impacted by pancreatic cancer. But think about the positives you know, think about the wins, not the losses. Be in the present, understand it, help raise mm-hmm. awareness. Because with all that positive momentum, change does occur. And so, you know, take that even a step further. Like you said, you know, everyone has a fist coming at you right now, it seems like. But, you know, if we have a different mindset, think about it from a different perspective, from a better perspective. I think the world would be a lot better place. Mm. So I want to go back to this colonoscopy that kind of put everything kind of in motion here. Before you had that, you know, doctor who was just adamant that you get that testing. I know you said, you know, you realized, you know, going through your, your, experience with your wife that, you know, health was so important and, you know, you being sick or not healthy doesn't help anyone else in your life, but were there signs and symptoms? And I know I say this often on the podcast, hindsight's always 2020. It's easier for us to look back in the past today and say, huh, you know, I had this, uh, rapid weight loss, you know, right before that, or, you know, I knew something wasn't right. And, you know, naturally the doctor was being adamant and, you know, but there was really something under the hood that wasn't working correctly. Or maybe there was an episode years ago that now it all makes sense. Was there anything that you could look back, Alan, hindsight again being 2020, that you can today say, huh, that was probably part of what was going on? Yes. Um, I think the first thing, that you said about losing weight. And I always like to work that work out, you know, I was in the gym. Um, and I, I kind of uh, took care of myself in that area. But in working out, I thought the losing weight was because I was working out. And it's it's an amazing thing. There, there are three things that you normally don't do every day. Is that you don't see yourself as you are in the mirror. You see yourself as you think you are. Yeah. 
you know. So I thought I was really okay, and I was losing weight, but I didn't see how how much weight I was really losing. Mm-hmm. And it dawned on me when I went to put a belt on, and the belt that I was putting on were three, four holes down around the belt. As you know, you know when you're putting your belt loop in, and you know the loop in your belt was getting tighter and tighter, smaller and smaller. I said, wow, something's not right. So that was one indication. Another thing is that um, I was hungry but wasn't able to eat. You know, pancreas, because the the pancreas really helps out in that area of digestion, helps out in other areas because it has a twofold um, responsibility, right? Um, and, And so in eating, I would eat, but my eating intake was smaller but I had the craving of the same foods, but smaller intake of it. That was another uh, indication. Yeah. Um, I think most of all, uh, and this is probably the biggest one, was the fatigue factor. And I thought because I was working two jobs, taking care of family, wife mm-hmm. and everything, the stress, that that was causing the fatigue. So the blinder was, I believe, fatigue. That I hit, I hit myself through the fatigue of the cancer, but thought it was the job, the family, mm-hmm. and other things around that. So fatigue was really something. Um, I would, I could go to go to my job and take a, a nap on the spot, boom, just like that. Hmm. When in previous years, man, I'd work work was no problem, but I would just take a nap. So those were indications looking back for me. And everyone's different. The fatigue factor. That was a great sign given to my body, but I didn't listen to it. I really didn't. Hmm. So you go to get the colonoscopy, they find the incidental finding, and then where does the path go from there? Like, do, do you go back in for further testing for a pancreas CT, and then they realize the rest of what's going on? Well, yeah. Well, what happened was after they did the colonoscopy, they you know uh, did a culture of that, and they say, well, yes, you do have a benign tumor, mm. and so they said, well, let's go take some pictures. And then when they took the pictures of it, they saw it was pretty huge. It was a huge tumor. And again, uh, luckily to me, it didn't attach. It was just a tumor that could have attached to any of my other organs, but it didn't. Mm. And that was that was a strange thing. So they removed it. And, um, but that continuation of, uh, the finding was, all right, let's go take some pictures. Because at that point, um, if they had waited weeks or two weeks, but here's something, um, when I say fortunate, timing is everything. It was just before COVID also, because during the COVID, COVID, they started, um, any procedures, they were shutting down procedures in the hospital. Doctors were making appointments, setting them three months later. So I was fortunate again to get that in before December 7th. And as you know, mm-hmm. December and then January, yeah, March, yeah. February, March, COVID just broke out. And it was, again, timing. But if they had said, well, let's wait until the first of the year, let's do this. You know, I could have been, because it's just before the holidays. I said, well, now let's get it done now. And remember, I was diagnosed November 18th, and that was just before the Thanksgiving holiday. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I don't really, and the holidays had nothing really, any boundaries on me doing it. It's just that that was a time when, you know, people are taking their vacations and holiday time, so the staffing normally is minimized. So again, um, because of that decision, the doctors and myself made, we got it done. And that's because they, when they did that, they found it in the first stage. So did you go in for surgery? December, November 18th, with diagnosed, December 7th, I had my surgery. Like a few weeks later. Boom. That's how quick it was. Wow. Right? So... Where are you then after your? I see, did you have the Whipple? Is that what you had, Alan? Say, could you could you repeat that? Which did you have the Whipple surgery? Uh, I'm not familiar with the Whipple surgery. Um, 
there's so many different procedures that people do based upon where the location of a tumor is. So yep. the ripper, um, I know they had to, um, you know, from my abdomen down, they had to open me up and take it out. Yep. And then, yep. so, so you have that surgery in December and then what happens post? Like what, what did the, the aftermath of the surgery look like? Chemotherapy, radiation? Yes, both. Chemo, radiation. Was that you? Yeah, sorry about that. That was just uh, the hair in the... Uh... That's okay. You said that we would have that kind yeah. of... <laughs> you know, laugh. You gotta laugh. You know, laugh, laugh. So, yes, there was a combination of that. Um, I think, again, the biggest medicine that I received was, was from people who knew what I went through with my wife. And again, what I was going through, you say post, people keeping me laughing, keeping me aware of what um, my responsibility as a man, my responsibility as a father, and my responsibility as community still. Those things didn't go away just because you have that. You're still responsible for who you are as a human. So I kept that really responsible feeling that I'm still a human and I still have a responsibility to other humans that may be thicker than I am. And again, you can't judge because uh, uh, seeing young kids coming in and seeing older people, 55 and older than me, going through it, I had a responsibility to them to you know, uh, help them out with their, um, their walker when they can't get to the elevator because when you go to treatment during that time, you had to go in by yourself. You didn't mm-hmm. have family you were there by yourself. So I would see older people, 85, that were walking, and I had to help them even though I was hurting. You know, again, it's reaching with an open hand rather than a closed fist. Those were the paramount things that made me realize post. What is post? Is it just a chemo? Is it just a radiation? No. It's still the human relationship that you have with people. You know, because you can, you can cuss out a nurse cuss out a doctor because you didn't get your water on time. You know, they didn't uh, say excuse me, they didn't do whatever. But if you still have those basic fundamental, what did you learn? The three things I learned in kindergarten that I still use today, put things back that don't belong to you. Mm -hmm. Say please and thank you when someone gives or takes. And most of all, Remind each other that you are important also. Those are things we learned in kindergarten. Hmm. And those are the post-ops. So post-op wasn't just chemo and radiation, you know. And that's what people think. Because people go in sad because of uh, uh, family members not showing up or calling. Yeah. You, you know, that's when you go in and you go in. And for me... I don't feel morbid, and this may sound morbid, but I'm so glad I had to go in there by myself and get this done. Because I would have reached for other people, oh, you could do it, you can get it done, you have to, you know, oh, what was me, victim now. Because I went in at the COVID time, I had to go in there, pull up my boots, and get it done. And I'm not saying that I don't, um, because I believe in my higher power, I know that my Messiah, and I don't know if that is able to be said. Oh, go right ahead. We don't we don't hold back on the Project Purple podcast. Faith. I, we we I don't talk that. about politics, but we go into faith plenty of times. <laughs> I know that Yahshua the Messiah was the one that was helping me. You know, there were times that he would pull me. Mm-hmm. There were times that he would push me. But I know most of all, you know, there were times that he was carrying me. And that is when I knew that I was going to survive and be a survivor of this, this pancreatic cancer, is that he was carrying me. And I couldn't do it on my own. I couldn't do it. As I said, if there were other people there, I probably would have kept him out of the picture. Yeah. I, well, whoever wants to say the higher power, whatever you want to say, but I know Yahshua the Messiah, and I'll say that publicly, was the one who got me through it. Okay. Yeah, I can say um, 
you know, from my experience that, you know, faith, whoever you believe in, um, not here to give a lesson on religion, but I will tell you probably 90% of the, the people that, um, have beat this thing, have fought this thing that have been on the podcast that we've interviewed mentioned faith as something that is getting them through that time. So again, we're not here to promote one over the other, but I do know from my research that, you know, faith seems to be a big part of people who are able to beat this thing and to fight this thing, you know, as part of their life. Um, so, you know, that's important. And, and, you know, the, the thing I was going to just jump in here and say is, um, you know, it's kind of crazy, you know, I mean, we're, I guess we're still technically in the pandemic, um, here in Connecticut, our governor still has, uh, executive powers. And so, um, you know, here we are almost 22 months later since this thing started. Right. And, uh, well, about 20 months, I think. So, you know, going through chemotherapy and treatment, as you said, by yourself, for our listeners at home, I mean, that in itself, you know, the, the surgery, all that stuff, um, you know, that, that going through that is awful. Cause that's, that's, that's a no joke. Um, and whether you had like a, a distal pancreatomy or, um, you know, a Whipple, you know, two of the surgeries that you can have, I think if my memory serves me right, I think you had a distal, um, if, if just, I remember reading your, your, uh, your information beforehand, but right. that in itself is a big deal, right? Anytime you go in there and you mess around with the inner workings of the body. And I know we've talked about the anatomy, you know, people don't realize the pancreas, it's almost on your spine, but they cut you in front and not to get gross here, but you know, they got to move everything out of the way to get to there. To get there. Yeah. So it's not, it's not, you know. People don't realize like any type of surgery involving the pancreas is pretty, pretty evasive. And it's a big deal um, because of where it is and what they need to do to get there. It's not like it's on the surface, um, you know, that they can easily access. So you have the surgery, but then now you have to do, you know, chemo and radiation on your own (laughs) during a, during a global pandemic, which you know, people in the beginning thought that this thing was going to take out people with compromised immunity really quick. Thank God it didn't for the most part, you know, yeah. but uh, I think, you know, going through that process, you know, probably looked a lot different than when you were with your wife, you know, being able to probably be with her as she was going through her treatments. Yes, sir. You know, so that's something that, uh, you know, I, I hope our audience can grasp that because that in itself has been no easy feat, just the chemotherapy and radiation during this pandemic, because like you said, you got to pull up your pants and you got to go in and do it, but you got no one there to help you, support you other than the nurses, which I'm sure they were great, but it's not an easy task. Well, the task was given because I think most tasks are given to people who can perform the task. I think many people still um, believe that they can do a lot on their own. And the biggest task that anyone can do is ask for help. And that's when we become vulnerable, is not being able to have the sensitivity to ask for help because you're vulnerable at that time. And vulnerability makes you weaker to any other human. But because there wasn't anyone else around to ask for help, that vulnerability had to subside. I had to get that vulnerability on my own. Well, you're vulnerable. You got to take your, your, your walking centrifuge. And if you have to go to the bathroom, you have to go by yourself and walk back by yourself. Where normally you would have three three family members around. Oh, let me go get this. Can I get this for you? Can I read this thing? So again, um, people get stuck, you know, when they don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. So a 
if I allowed people to see things the way I was, I would have never gotten through it because they would have made me see something that I did not want to see. I was not denying that I had cancer, but I wanted to see myself already healed from that cancer. So being alone, I kept saying, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. And these are the plans that I'm going to do after I get healed. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to help other people. I'm going to do the things. And I didn't say that just to get selfish thoughts in my head to get me healed. I really mean it. And so I believe that because I saw myself the way I was and I had have other people see me in that condition, I was able to get through it quickly. It's like a, it's like a saying spaghetti <laughs> on your tie. You forget it's stained and you wore the tie last week and you wear it again and someone says, hey, you wore that tie last week. How do you know? Because you have a spaghetti stain on it. Yeah. <laughs> so I did not want people to see my stained, tear-stained face when I was going into uh, my chemo because I had a tear-stained face. I could see the marks where I cried so much by myself. Hmm. Those tears were so embedded in my face. But I had to one day say no more tears. So once I stopped tearing, I started smiling. And then the wrinkles came around my wrinkles face from smiling so much because I had to laugh at myself. <laughs> you just had to laugh, you know? And love so it. I did that. I, I love that attitude. And, and I, I use the term mindset. Where, where do you think, and I got another question here, but I, I want to ask this because we're on this. Where, where does that come from, Alan? I mean, I know you said, you know, a lot changed when you lost your wife, but, you know, that mindset that you have here and, and what you've just said in the last 38 minutes here as we've been talking, you know, is, is pretty amazing. Did that come? Can you look back again, hindsight being 2020? That was that from an experience in life, from a parent, sibling? I think you get it. You just said it. Parents, siblings, uh, sibling rivalry was always. I, I, I'm a I'm I'm an identical twin, so there was always some um, rivalry there. However, you know when you talk about experiences, I think about all the legends that were before us. Um, a small legend. Mm-hmm. Um, Take Casey Jones, for for instance. You know, Casey would get up at bat, right? And one of the things about Casey Jones was that he never struck out. <laughs> so when he got up to bat, he would always assume that he would get a hit, but he never prepared himself for when he didn't get a hit, how people would look at him. So I think when you go through anything in life, people have this, this premier idea about who you are until you go through something that really points out, did you prepare for the strikes that are coming in your life, even though you haven't struck out yet? So that was probably, as I said, that gave me the strength to prepare earlier because I never looked at success as just being successful. Success was something to realize that someone else didn't succeed. So when you have success, that means someone else didn't have it. So I always made myself always paramount that my success could be someone else's failure, but my failure could be someone else's success. So it goes both ways. You always put yourself in that perspective, and that's great to have a different perspective. You know, you can have a car accident, Three different people see the car accident where? In different perspectives, different vantage points, different points of view. Oh, no, they were speeding at 50. No, it was 30. It was 20. No, And then the two people in the car see it completely different. And the person that you hit see it completely different. So our world is changing because we keep seeing the world as not as it is, Gino, but we keep seeing as we are. So I had to stop seeing who I was. I was successful in and um, in my job, I was successful in sport, you know, um, I was successful in a marriage, but I never prepared for failure. And I would prepare for failure, but I didn't know when it was coming or where it was coming. 
and you have to say, anyone's enemy is your success because people want to get where you are because they're going to knock you down from your success. And me succeeding through cancer, I hope that it doesn't make someone else not want to to make it because of what I just said. You can make this. You, I believe you can make any type of cancer treatment and any diversity if you're willing to put forth what? Strike time. What is your strike zone? Is it high? Is it low? Is it in between? Where's your strike zone? What are you going to do with it when you get it? Are you going to ask for help? Again, open hands or closed fist. Where are you? You know? That's powerful. Wow. That's pretty powerful there. I, I got, I want to go back to in this question. So where are you today? I know we talked, uh, you know, about doing chemo radiation during the pandemic. Are you still in treatment? Um, are you still, uh, you know, going through some challenges from surgery and from the cancer? Um, yes. I have three more days of radiation treatment, which is hallelujah. Um, 30 days of it, three more to go. That's a great thing. When you say, what's ahead of me? The biggest thing ahead of me is the unknown now. Mm -hmm. Did the treatment work? Has it worked? How long duration of time does it work? You know, um, because treatment is, it's treatment, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, like we get a COVID vaccine. How long is it going to last for? We're, we're going to, we're supposed to get booster shots. They say, mm-hmm. You know, you got your booster shot in six months. Oh, you probably do forget. So treatment is not treatment. Treatment is how you handle what you believe, how far you can go with it. I believe I'm going to live to be a hundred. I don't know if the world's going to be around in a hundred years, but, <laughs> well, <laughs> but you know, that's the mindset you have to, you know, you have to just believe that you do have that in an unselfish way. Yeah. But what am I going to do with those days that I'm looking forward in the future? Is it just for me to gather wealth? Is it just for me to gather more stuff? Is it me? Is it for me to share time with other people? I believe that. Okay. I want time to share with more people so I can reach out for them and help them and to see that they need to share more time with other people. I don't think that I will get more time if I just want to gather more wealth, more stuff, more stuff that you don't buy more shirts that you're not going to wear, get shoes that you know. Listen, I worked and were around guys. Do you know, and this may seem funny, but it's a true statement. I worked around guys and played around guys that wore a thousand dollar Armani suit but had dirty underwear underneath. <laughs> I worked with guys and played with guys that wore $300 alligator shoes but had holes in their socks. Mm-hmm. So we cover up that outside, but I'm not covering up the outside anymore with anything else because I know my inner man has changed. That inner man, that renewing man has been renewed. And I am thankful again to, you know, Yasha the Messiah who's got me to understand the inner man in me has changed. The other man, the scars, I have scars from the operation. And I'll lift my I'll lift my shirt up and say, Hey, this is a scar, but you don't see it. you don't see the, the, the beauty that is left inside of me. Because there's some beauty now that I never thought was there. And that's to have the open hand and no more close fist. Wow. It's powerful. I've got a couple questions here left for us. Uh, First one is someone listening to this podcast, maybe they just have been diagnosed, just came home, happened to come across your podcast, Alan. What's the best advice you would give them? Don't go to Google to look up your diagnosis. Don't go there you know, uh, because you're going to have 30 different versions of what can happen to you. Mm-hmm. 
and you're going to pick the one that you think that fits you, and it could be the wrong one. I believe that's a time you get quiet and still within yourself and say, are you going to deal with this thing or are you going to fold up? You have to do that right away. You have to do that right away. You know, you know, I always, I always refer to sports because that was the biggest lesson. You asked me about rivalry. You asked me what got me through. My coach, literally coach would always get upset with me. I would get up at bat, you know, and I would let three good strikes go by. <laughs> and then I would go back to the dugout. And I'd throw my hat, my my glove, or my bat, throw it down. And he says, after the game, he says, Al, come and talk to me for a minute. He says, I am not angry at you for striking out. I'm angry at you because you didn't swing. You didn't swing. If you're not swinging at your cancer, you're going to strike out. You cannot like three days go by, four days go by, five days go by and think about what you're going to do. You have to decide when you're up at bat, I'm going to swing three times. If you let three good balls go by and don't strike out on your own, you will strike out on your own. You have to take a swing the first day you're diagnosed. Does that make sense? That's some powerful stuff, Alan. I, I, I'm taking notes this whole time. And uh, uh, let me tell you, I've got a whole list of, of quotes here. Um, you know, I chalked this back up to this amazing mindset, um, but that was uh, that made complete sense. And I hope our audience is listening and it's setting in on them because that what you just said, I've never heard that. And I mean, I've done over 180 episodes, but I mean, maybe I have, but just not in that context. And I'm a sports guy. So that just kind of, you just hit a home run with me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know, you, you, you can go out, you could definitely go down and strike out. They, coaches love when you strike out, but yeah. you can't go down. You can't go down not swinging. Not oh, no, swinging. no. Powerful. They, they, ooh, man, they get upset at that. Powerful. Woo. Is that right? They don't want you going down watching the ball go by. Three of them? You got at least, you can, they'll let you watch one. (laughs) You can let one go by. But those other two, you better swing at. You just better swing. And you can let one, your first day, you know, your first day at the shock. Oh, man, cancer. Wow. Okay, we'll give you that day. But those next two days, you got to say you're going to beat this thing. And you have to, you know, you have to really, you know, do a reality check, you know, because where you are. And there are people who beat cancer in their fourth stages. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, fourth stage. You know, third stage, second stage. It's up to you. But you don't get four strikes. No. You get three. <laughs> That's, you I, 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 love, I love that analogy. Yeah, man. My next question. Yes, sir. So clearly during COVID, as we said before, it's just a unique time. I say COVID during this pandemic where, you know, it's totally different 180 degree experience from when your wife was going through treatment and when you were going through treatment by yourself, pull up your pants, go do it. You mentioned family before you talk about some influences during that time. and And we get this question a lot here. I've got a family member that just has been diagnosed or a really good friend, a neighbor. I want to do something really, really nice for him. What could I do? So the question to you, Alan, is during that time where you were going through your treatment, what was one thing, or maybe maybe it's multiple things that your family or friends did for you during that time that just was really impactful and, and helped you along this journey? Well, you know what? When when you measure what people have done for you, it could be on a scale. And I don't want to do that because someone just saying hello when you're about to cry is a big push. Mm-hmm. When someone ahead of you lets you go in online when you're trying to get into traffic 
and you're late for your appointment. And they don't know that you're late for an appointment. And because they let you in on time, let you in, in that uh, on the road on time, that meant something. My neighbors have really been great for me. Um, just tremendous. But legends, again, are what people have done in their past. How do they become legends? Because they forget about themselves when they're hurting. And my neighbors told me, Al, don't do that. At this time, you need to be selfish. You've tried to help me out with my family, my things. We're going to help you. But we're not going to ask you, where shall we help? We're going to take the time to find out. So when people, because everyone says, if you need me, call me. If you need me, call me. Everybody says that when you're going through something. You know, I think, you know, um, my financial embarrassment was really something because when I lost my wife, we had four incomes. She had two jobs. I had two jobs. We were trying to raise four kids. We lost two boys. We had three girls and a son. So in doing all of that, my financial was like, so we had four jobs. So when she lost her bout, we lost two jobs. Mm. And then when I lost my bout, now we lost four jobs and still trying to, to survive in an area that, but you know what? That's when my neighbors really came through. They didn't, they didn't ask, well, he must need some water. They bought the water. Well, he must need his water. I see it's 19 feet tall. Mm. <laughs> We're not going to go ask them, can we cut your lawn? We're just going to go do it. We're not going to see if they're dogs. They have dogs. We're going to bring, we're going to bring some dog food. So there are times when I realized people would help out because there were times I knew that they needed help and I would just do it. So reciprocation was great. But I talked to you about legends. One of the biggest legends and one of my biggest mentors still, and she's been dead for a hundred years and maybe more, is Helen Keller. Helen Keller is my my legend, my mentor. And I kept her picture with me. I kept, wow. I kept her picture with me in treatment. Helen Keller. Now, Helen Keller was a lady who taught the blind, who taught people who couldn't hear, and she taught thousands, you know, and you know what? She could not hear herself. She couldn't even hear herself teach someone. She mm. couldn't even see herself teach someone. So we become so blinded by what we own, the car, the house. Those are our blinding things that we have that block us from doing for our neighbors. But Helen Keller being such a mentor for me but I don't look at Helen Keller. I look at Mrs. Sullivan, who saw something in Helen Keller. And the world didn't see anything in her. Mrs. Sullivan saw something in Helen Keller that the world didn't. And I see both of them. And they just happen to be women. But those are my two biggest mentors in my lifetime, other than Babe Ruth, Vicky Mando, hmm. uh, uh, you know, anybody, Brett Favre, anybody in the NBA, NFL, anybody, those two women, for me, were my biggest mentors, because they saw in each other trust. I trust them that you've seen something in me that no one else does. But I'm going to trust that in my vulnerability that you're willing to help me, even though I don't know how I can help you. And Miss Sullivan did not help her, and, and Helen did not receive it, but they both became my I'm sorry, Jim. No, they became my mentor. That's quite a right, Alan. They became my mentor. And to any of the people listening, get someone that you don't think you can help 
because you'll never know how it's going to help you. And I know my quest to help is to really reach out for those that help me. And there, you know, there are people who can reach in my pocket and give me, a, give me a whatever. I'm not looking for that. Just say hello. Just say good morning. Say goodbye and thank you. Put things back that don't belong to you. When it's time in the afternoon to take a nap, take your nap. Take your nap. Because if you do, you will have a good dream. Gina, I'm full. I am so full. And my emotions are full. And I don't know if I can take much more of this compact. Okay? Is that okay? Yeah, I, I have one more question for you. I don't mind. Alan, and uh, this is probably the hardest one. And, and first, let me say, uh, you know, what you've just said over the last 57 minutes here, as I look at the clock uh, on the, the recording, is, is pretty profound. So, one, I want to thank you for being open and, open and honest, as you have. And, I, and I, can, I can tell, you know, this is a difficult conversation. But I hope as I said before we hit record, is that we inspire someone out there. All it takes is one, Alan. One yep. person to, to you know, who's maybe going through this, that this conversation that you and I are having are, is going to get them through it. I, I truly believe that. So uh, I know it's not easy, uh, but I, I appreciate you being as, on, as honest and as open with the worst of your life. My last question for you, and this is a hard one. Um, it's a loaded question, but it's 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 your answer, and there's no right or wrong to this. Is given your experience, what is your definition of pancreatic cancer? How do you define it? How would I define that? I wouldn't want people to come and speak to me at my funeral, standing there and saying, he died of this, he died of pancreatic cancer. I would not want anyone to miss the birth of a baby or or a wedding because they thought about people dying of pancreatic cancer who was a friend of theirs. So I see pancreatic cancer, I don't see it as a as a dis-ease. Although it is, I see it as a really a, a, a push to bring Myself and people who, you know, there's a dash. You have a dash. Mm-hmm. You know, when you and I are on the on the yard line, and we're going to have a dash for the hundred yard line. I want us all to begin at the same dashing point. You can't say that we're going to have a race, and. It's going to be 100 yards, but I'm going to put myself at the 50. Yeah. yeah. And let's start the race. I said, no. When you're diagnosed with cancer, we all start at the same race. So I see again, pancreatic cancer is not a disease. It's a race. It's a race of what you want to do with your time. Because it could be shortened or lengthened, lengthened, lengthened. Mm-hmm. Sorry about the tongue tie, but it, it it matters. It really matters that what is pancreatic? What does it mean to me? I don't think there's enough time because there's two full. It's a twofold thing because you know the pupil of the eye. Do you know? Yeah. The pupil of the eye is what all people have. Every human being has a pupil of the eye. 
what it does, it regulates light coming into the body and it regulates light going out. It opens and closes. It opens and closes. So I think it's pancreatic cancer as the pupil of the eye. It opens you up to the darkness in your in your life for the moment, but also shuts out some lightness, light in your life that you shouldn't be even looking at. Yeah. You know, because again, the glamorous, how pretty you really are on the outside, pretty face, how much your muscles are. You can lift up, you can lift up 500 pounds, but wouldn't open a door for someone in front of you, a woman. You know, I think it really opens your eyes up to the pupil of what you see in yourself. Because that pupil is really, they call it dilate. Ever going in for a test for a dilation with your eyes? Ever do that? Yeah. And they give you these fake glasses, but these yeah. fake glasses look fake. They're paper, yeah. but you know they're they're powerful. They're powerful. Because yeah. You, yeah, because if you don't wear those glasses when you go out, you could damn it. And the doctor says, "Wear these for the next I don't know what is it hour or so." Yeah. Please, Gino. Please, Alan. In the world, wear these glasses for the next hour. If you don't, the light that that you're normally used to can blind you. Just like normal light you used to. Or that darkness that you, you know. So I believe pancreatic cancer for me just opened my eyes up to the light and darkness that was always around me, but I didn't really see. Powerful, Alan. Last thing, someone listening to this, if they find what you say, as I have, inspirational, and they want to reach out, maybe talk to you about your journey, share something that you inspired them in this podcast, what's the best way for people to connect with you? If that's okay to share. Well, you know, so many people have ways of sharing. They do it by email. They mm-hmm. do it by phone. They do it by just pressing hands or by letter. I think that we got to get back to old school. And, and I'm going to say this with, um, clarity, and I hope I don't offend anyone when I say this. I think a letter in the mail is the best way to contact me because it means that you really took time and personally wanting to do it. Because an email, you can get on an email and send 300 emails in a minute to 300 people. But try writing 300 letters to people in different parts of the world 10 people, 10 households down your street. Not a card, but a little note. So um, if I give my address, is that okay or no? Absolutely. And I love that idea. I love I love getting things handwritten or even typed, but then hand signed in the mail. That, that makes my day because you're right. My- emails, you can send 100 emails, text messages. It's not formal. But getting a letter that someone took the time to write is that 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 is like amazing? So go ahead and give your address. Yeah, it is. It is fifty six Abbey Rough Road, Danbury, Connecticut. Fifty six Abbey Rough Road, Danbury, Connecticut. Oh six eight one one. And you know, and Gino reminds me of Midas. Remember King Midas? King Midas had a, he had a golden touch. Yeah. Anything he touched, anything he touched was gold. He touched an egg, it turned to gold. He would touch this, it would turn to gold. But, you know, his daughter came to him one day and said, Dad, Dad. He said, no, 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 no. But he, his daughter wanted to give him a, a hug. And he couldn't give his daughter a hug because he didn't want her to turn, to turn into gold. Other, he didn't want her to turn into gold. All the other things were, because they would have turned, she would have turned into everything else that he had. But her not turning into gold was one of the best things he didn't do was to touch her. So he's able to keep her. You ever just read that story? Yeah. The, the golden touch with King Midas. I remember wow. that from high school. A long, long time oh, I, ago. <laughs> we won't uh, age yeah, myself. I, oh yeah, I remember you know, Midas touch, you know. Yeah. He was he was a must and we think we we all think we have the Midas touch until you get something like this. You don't have the Midas touch. <laughs> Because all your gold that's around you is going to flatter. That gold house, that gold car, that Mercedes, the, your big bank account. You yeah. know, and I tell you, I don't, I don't even have, uh, you know, two pennies. Man, I'm trying to run them together to get three. 
So, so I know right now you don't have the gold, the Midas touch, but you do have someone around you that is more precious than gold. You just got to find out who they are. Powerful stuff, Alan. Alan, I want to thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. I, as I said, I, I was taking notes and, and wrote so many things. And one of the things that uh, I just want to close with, I want to thank you for being a guest. But something you said is, you know, and this is bigger picture here, is if we live with open hands versus a closed fist and the amazing mindset that you shared with us today, I hope our audience enjoys this episode as much as I enjoyed interviewing you. Thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple Podcast. Well, I thank you for having me. And to everyone else, uh, thank this gentleman here, Gina, for having me. This is something new to me. I've never done it before. So uh, I was a little nervous, but he calmed me down. But thank you, (laughs) Gina. And I appreciate your audience. I really do. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear today, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share this podcast. And until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Mm-hmm.